Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and joining me, as always, is Nick Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hey, Ryan. And joining us from the booth that never was, Rick Deal. Hey, Rick. Hey, guys. So today we're here to talk to you about something slightly uh, different, but probably almost exactly the same as our episode on Tiger King, uh, which is dystopias. So before we get started with our discussion on dystopias, Nick, could you give us some kind of a working definition on what a, what exactly a dystopia is? Bad world. It's a bad world. It's a bad world. It's a bad world. And do we want to give any more context on like why dystopias became a thing in fiction or in writing? Like, like do you want to give us some background? Because I know that we've talked about this before in terms of the how thought changed over time in the 17, 1800s. Like, why would people start thinking about dystopias? Well, um, there was this really fun thing called utopias. That, mm. um, what was that, pray tell? <laughs> they were really just like flirty, sexy, fun, just simple little things. Uh, Crazy, sexy, cool. <laughs> yeah. But back when people really like cared about things, I guess is a good mm. way to put it. Ernest, <laughs> Ernest, yeah, everything was earnest. People love that. Mm. Um, there were some monks, some intellectuals, some crazy ladies, positivists. Who, yeah, sure. Any any fun group of people you want. We're like, we're gonna start this utopia. It's gonna be bomb.com. Yeah, and we're gonna write poetry about Ozymandias or yes, something. If we can just get back to like the natural state of things, because mm. there was this kind of idea of are we gonna talk about jean jacques rousseau sure let's w- just do it i wasn't gonna bring him up let's just do it but like children are perfect that's children, where we got angel babies children are literal <laughs> perfect creatures as anyone who's ever been around them knows ask any parent of a toddler yeah. and what you will find is that indeed children are perfect in their natural yeah. state really yes. the problem is your parenting that's what I've always thought. probably become. also true to be fair. Well, yeah, well duh. Doy, but like <laughs> So let's say eighteen hundreds. Was that the was that the kind of hotbed of utopian thought? To be really honest with you, I can't give you a hard yes or no. I'm gonna that. go eighteen hundreds because we had the sort of romance back to nature. If we could just simplify things, if we could all live like on Walden Pond or something, it would just be it would just be so transcendental. It'd be amazing. Yeah. And the important thing about this period is they were very upfront about it being a utopia. Like yes. they were like, I'm a utopian socialist. This is the plan. Period. And it, and a lot of this is a reaction to things like the British Empire and the machine thought, language, concepts, world construction of we are going to build the perfect society in a scientific kind of Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a uh, mechanized metal gear solid way. I don't know. I'm just throwing Ooh. out some word soup. Yeah. Um, Wasn't that the original blueprint for Epcot? Yeah. Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, exactly. Solid Snake. <laughs> Liquid Snake. No, it was. It was like the future, like Disney, Walt Disney, besides his issues with Jewish people, mm-hmm. um, he besides not envisioning them as part of the future, um, what he did was he envisioned... <laughs> A world in which science and technology and innovation 
would lead us to a perfect society, which that's a kind of utopia. Yeah. But what Nick and I have been talking about is almost like a more naturalist utopia, kind of back to basics. Yeah, there's a lot of like, well, because how they operated practically was normally small agricultural like communes. Like kibbutzim? Yes. As we discussed previously, they were small farmsteads where people would have tasks and... No conflict. Not a lot of conflict, mostly because it was a very homogenous culture. But, um, yeah. And I think... We see a Denmark. <laughs> pray for them, honestly. <laughs> like, they need it. Um, yeah, I get it. Copenhagen's great. All right, Ryan. It's well, rough. We heard you. <laughs> Let the whiskey pour. Um, I just... Basically, moving from that kind of agricultural life on the farm back mm. to how things were in the 20th century you have the birth of i will go on a, out on a limb here sorry let's do it and i will say there's three big boys what i like about this podcast and about our conversations is that sometimes we advance radical theoretical constructs that have almost certainly not existed before but you know maybe we're right Mm -hmm. So Nick's going to lay something out for you. There are three different yeah. boys in the world of utopia and Nick's dystopia gonna, in the world of dystopia, yeah. which is reaction against the utopia, which is a reaction against another kind of utopia. But anyway, three big yeah. boys in the world of dystopia. And those are number one, Orwell, Definitely. George, Jorge, Jorge, Orwell. Jorge Orwell, um, much like Mitt Romney. No one knows he's Mexican. I did. Because I watched that Vice episode. Sorry about it. <laughs> Not a good source, I know. Like, whatever. Hit me up in the DMs. Um, they, Orwell, came out, hey guys, big critique on, I mean, if you've read it. War of the Worlds. <laughs> yes. If you've read That's War what you're of the Worlds. About, right? Yeah, yeah. It's very much like, just a basic critique of what you were talking about earlier which is hey we're all part of the alignment it's pretty dope loving this penicillin sorry rick <laughs> loving this rick's allergic to penicillin yeah. i would penicillin. literally die but it's fine yeah evolution earlier. is a thing <laughs> sucks to suck <laughs> that's what nature says about not like being sour, able to rick. eat mushroom dust um, <laughs> I'm still here, so apparently not only the strong survive. <laughs> Take that, Darwin. Yeah. He's rolling over in his grave. In hell. <laughs> Got you. Which but. is London. <laughs> That's where he is. Yeah, I think the South End would be pretty hellish at this point. But I... Going back to Orwell, <laughs> it's a very basic critique of that belief of, hey... Are we, we talking Animal Farm? Animal Farm is, I view that more as like, look at what structural dictator socialism is bad about. Status socialism, yeah. Yeah. But 1984 mm -hmm. is very much like... Oh, that's what we're talking about. Yes. Okay. We're worshipping this big brother state and kind of this huge monolithic government, which if you're looking at the early 20th century, we're coming into the New Deal... And like not just progressivism as a let's make society better, but we can, with our scientific expertise, perfect societies in such a way that we will eventually 
scientifically make them perfect. Yeah, we'll use the verb engineer when we're talking about social structures. Yes, yeah, social engineering. Yeah. So I, I think he's like step one. And I'm going on a rain here. I'm sorry that other no, people this aren't is talking. Yeah. I'm really this is what honest. I'm here for. Yeah. We we just, Rick and I decided to do this podcast to hear you talk. He's only 50% joking, by the way. Oh, wow. So Orwell... I'm blushing. Orwell is big boy number one. Yes. And he's like, hey, technology, <clears throat> someday Steve Jobs is going to make a commercial out of this with a sledgehammer and some chick. Yeah. Also, not to, not to like, detour us, but if I'm not mistaken, wasn't he somebody who... He previously was like an idealistic socialist, but then became disillusioned seeing the state of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Like he thought this was going to be... No, I don't think that's true, Steve Jobs. Okay, never mind. (laughs) Yeah, Steve Jobs was a diehard socialist. Are you talking about Orwell? I was talking about Orwell. Yes. Mm -hmm. Somebody who looked on and thought this was going to be the advent of greatness and prosperity for the people and then saw what transpired in the Soviet Union and then went, oh, oh no. Oh yeah. Oh, awful. And the tangent, your tangent, but you really have to imagine historically when the Soviet Union started, like you had people like Wittgenstein being like, I'm moving there. Because Mm -hmm. if you are a Marxist or if you've been reading that stuff, you're obviously like, this is the great experiment. Yes, and Trotsky was like writing Imagine for John Lennon. Yeah, verbatim. Just... 70 years before. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> no, but like, I think Trotsky, Trotsky's super important. If you're going to talk about utopias and dystopias mm-hmm. and like Orwell and stuff like that, like when Trotsky gets murdered in Mexico at Poor Frida Kahlo's house Poor Frida. with a damn ice pick, that's a huge deal because what it shows is that the statists, this is the flaw. This is the flaw. The statists will take socialism they will gobble up the power, and then they will murder anybody who has a different vision than them. And that's what Animal Farm is about. Yeah. Yeah. And 1984 is about this super... I mean, and if you look at England today, the most surveyed... The most surveyed... Surveilled. Surveilled uh, state population in the world. Ever. CCTV, huge... For people who came up with Big Brother, very weird Gemma that they were Collins. like Jim Collins See, seeing mm-hmm. a ghost. Yeah, she honestly she needs CCTV. I if Jim Collins games twenty four seven twenty four seven for two days. Two days. <laughs> yeah, I'm known for two things: wearing too much bronzer <laughs> and always being on a diet. They saw that the British government saw that and were like, "This person has to be under surveillance 24-7, two days a week." So really, Big Brother is probably just the security footage from everyday British life. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not justified, yeah. but I will say, "Oops, Darren." Yeah, Derek, <laughs> claustrophobic. I and I think with Orwell, you you really see this. I know for sure he's not the first person to write a dystopic novel, but you really see this widespread use of dystopic fiction, which is it's perfect for high school and it's perfect for a classroom. And I'm not saying that in a patronizing way. I'm saying that because it opens up. When you talk about, I'm imagining the worst form of our society, I think... This isn't explicit, but I've always implicitly understood 
we're doing this so we can see the roots of those things now. Yeah. I don't think Orwell was like, wouldn't this be crazy? And it has nothing to do with how things are going I right think now. Additionally, I think when young people in general, and I'm still relatively young, I guess, but 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds tend to be more idealistic than others. And they tend to think, um, in general, once again, that solutions just haven't been tried. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we just did this, if we just like applied technology to society or if we just applied the principle of fairness to society or if we just all had just if everyone had a voice or if we just got rid of all those bankers or, or whatever, then everything would be great. And I think like it, you're absolutely right. Dystopic fiction is an incredible tool in high schools for making people who have not yet had the opportunity to experience the nuance of society like hey let's look at what would happen if we took one idea and just pushed it mm -hmm. with like little resistance i think that is uh, the service that dystopic fiction does for young people good dystopic fiction yeah because i think the problem with a lot of like ya dystopic like for okay Let's go there. Shoot me. Let's just kill do, me. Do you want to do Maze Runner? No. Games? I'm going oh. straight for the throat. We're going for Hunger Games All right, here. Go for Hunger Games. I. You don't like the margins in the center? Can I speak? Okay. I love Hunger Games aesthetically. I like it too. Like Iconic. It. She's strong. She's beautiful. Fortnite. Sure. And I get to see kids dying, which isn't a usual thing I get to see in media. So, like, mm -hmm. watching a child. Get an arrow through their throat. Child warrior. Sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe. While they're whistling the X-Files theme. <sighs> yeah, that was really triggering for me. I so felt... I wasn't the only one? Yeah. No. Oh, thank God. Yeah. I, I... No, no Scully really, I thought is it was in the crazy. background. Yeah, she's Scully's the one that's actually killing all these children. I mean, she she could have been in it. I'm on her side. Jillian Martin, like, or no. What's her Jillian name? Anderson. Jillian Anderson. I'm so sorry that I mis I misnamed you. Please. Sounds the same. Yeah. God, I don't know if I can go to church anymore. But I... So Hunger Games. Hunger Games. <laughs> For what it is, super fun, great. I actually like those films a lot. I think they're really fun. But in terms of what it's actually saying about our culture, sure... Reality, television, uh, violence. violence, and stuff. But everything it's saying is so, like, old hat and not really insightful. Like, Well, it's almost old school Soviet because it's yeah. the sucking of resources from the margins to the center, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a very old Marxist kind of thought. It's not a trope necessarily, but it's this, like, the people at the center are the people who have accrued benefits to themselves using the labor of the people at the margins mm -hmm. and they must pay yeah i mean that is similar to how we run our governments for real reasons in terms of like new york makes more money than butthole connecticut right or at least i hope so but yeah. like <laughs> i spent like regular connecticut no but butthole, butthole connecticut, connecticut, connecticut they yeah. are not Stepping yeah. up their game. And I... Like all the towns whose names end in Barry or Ford. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And I think you could say, like you said, okay, sure, maybe we put too much emphasis on New York and LA. And if there was some huge reason for there to be martial law, 
maybe the government would institute some type of publicly televised gladiatorial in response to the yoked districts rising up in rebellion against the capital so Mm -hmm. it would be like if uh new york dc la and san francisco continued to accrue wealth as they have done continue to accrue wealth and then eventually i know this is like super sci-fi but like people from red states with guns showed up at buildings and such and said hey we're here to take what's ours from you elite and then there was a war and then as a punishment those uh coastal elite cities said all right well you wanted to you know come take it then we're going to show you who's boss yeah and i'm not saying that that has no predictive powers because i think you can see in our culture we do value coastal elites but that compared to the deification of Henry Ford in Brave New World. When I read that in high school and had people in that novel, people, if you don't know, worship Henry Ford like a god. Mm-hmm. So the assembly line in that type of... Is that Aldous Huxley? Mm-hmm. Who, he's big boy too. Mm-hmm. Died on the same day as JFK and C.S. Lewis. Sucks to suck. Yeah, 1963. What a year. I mean, at least he was probably just on so much LSD. He didn't, he still doesn't know he's dead. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But that is so, that's such a cut because we do that already. Like, we don't deify Henry Ford, but in terms of how we run our societies, we kind of do. Well, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. These are people who have, I don't know if you can call them worshippers, but I don't have a better word. I think the the common cultural term would be cult followings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just see efficiency as this end in and of itself. And that's kind of like the horrifying, because in Brave New World, it's no one has organic births. Everyone's a test tube baby. From the moment you're born, you're already a cog in the machine. And everyone's on drugs that makes them feel good. Great. Awesome. And That's Soma. Soma. Mm-hmm. And it's just this purely work as an end in and of itself world. Would it be accurate to say if uh, 1984 is about a government that has overstepped its bounds that brave new world is about sort of a corporate world that has overstepped its bounds um i think it might have been a little bit too early to know or to have the language that we do now of at the time there weren't these major international corporations um, but it, I see it more of like Japan where the line between government and business is so small that yeah, I think there's a phrase in Japanese that's about like how it goes hand in hand. Yeah. And I, in there, your job and every, it's still completely government controlled, but I definitely think in common terms, a off the street Republican would probably jive more with 1984 
and a Democrat would jive more with Brave New World. In terms of what they view as the dangers, as the more likely dystopic scenario. Yeah. One is a hyper-oppressive, super-centralized, monolithic government structure that controls everything. The other one is a is still a government that controls everything, but it's more of a cultural... Because that's the big thing in Brave New World is everyone is cool with it. Like, everyone's like, oh, we're having these fun sex parties yeah. and I'm a beta and that's what I do. So I don't know why you're having so many problems with this. So it's like less top down, more sort of uh, bubbling up from mm-hmm. you know what people think they're doing of their own kind of free will. Well, in Brave New World, I think one of the greatest social crimes you can commit is being an individual. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the, the whole idea of you see one character who is just reviled because he's different and everyone just thinks, oh, there must be something wrong with him. Something went wrong with his breeding. You know, he was probably, I forget some of the expressions they use, but either left in the tube too long or maybe he was exposed to alcohol poisoning or whatever it was that, yeah. you know, they said, oh, there's there's definitely something wrong with him because he's different. And I think in that type of situation, the whole idea of a society where you can't be yourself, it's a crime to be an individual I can understand how you say, you know, to the modern liberal, that is more the kind of the the nightmare. Well, that is kind of resonant. It it, it reminds me of the Japanese salary man or the salary woman who their entire life is dictated by who they work for and what their job is. Mm -hmm. And there's just expectations of you work 20 hours of overtime, unpaid overtime every week. Sorry, Mm -hmm. it's just what everyone does. And then, and... I can't even hide this, but this is the one I like the most. But I would consider, and this is controversial, but I would consider Fahrenheit 451 Mm -hmm. as the last key in that. And just to clarify, there has been a ton of amazing dystopic fiction outside of this. I'm definitely not one of those people that's like... Other than Hunger Games? Other, And I'm not saying Hunger Games is bad. I'm just saying it's not... Hunger Games is the best... Of the YA dystopic. Yeah. Because stuff like Maze Runner... I still don't know what Maze Runner is trying to say. I don't know what they're trying to say. I honestly don't. Okay, there is a point in these novels and these fictions where I'm like, you have to at least make this seem a little bit reasonable. Or you have to stop contradicting your first point with your second point. Like, the the enemy is that they all want us to be the same. And mm-hmm. So it's like the enemies that we're different. Yeah, so. that's everyone. It's like I'm a teen, and I'm not the same as other people. And it's and it's they don't know how special we are. Ironically, everyone thinks that you just need to move to a major city, and you'll realize every cool person that you knew in high school moved to Brooklyn, and you're just legion. I we are legion. <laughs> Bradbury, so, there. Wait, so Orwell. Oh, yeah. Orwell. Huxley. Bradbury. Bradbury. Ray. Ray. Monorel King. Dandelion Wine. Men with living tattoos. That's a great story, by the way. But Ooh, I haven't heard that one in years. Mm-hmm. It's that one's dope. Yeah. Um Elon Musk has one of those. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I bet he does. But Bradbury. In Fahrenheit, um, I'm forgetting the number. <laughs> 451. 451. You can the tell temperature me. Fahrenheit at which books burn. Mm-hmm. Yes. Montag, and jet fuel. the uh, 
Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Answer, riddle me riddle that. Riddle me this montage. Yeah. The fireman. Losers. Um, he kind of brings it into a... I would say the most... As the 20th century has gone on, I think that Bradbury's vision has become the most likely okay. out of them. Because what Huxley and... Orwell, I think, couldn't imagine. Huxley kind of did because he invented doublespeak, which if you've seen contemporary politics, I'm yeah. sure you know that we love that. But I don't think they could imagine how radically self-aware political powers would become. Yeah. So I cannot see a world, honestly, where a government would come out. Because if you look at places like Saudi Arabia, which is very totalitarian and they're like we're making huge strides we have committed to reduce hangings this year and you're like great there's job, a woman guys. driver yeah we have women uber drivers like it's great but in in north korea too there's never this i think they imagined a world where people would be okay with it because they believed in social engineering and what bradbury does is this cultural change of no one reading books and everyone watching crazy full wall television TVs on every wall all the time is... And there's drugs in that too. Drugs and driving driving really, really fast. Really fast. Like billboards have to be 200 yards long because yeah. you're driving so fast or whatever. Why that happened was because society wanted that to happen. It wasn't a hostile, yeah. conspiratorial... It wasn't external. No. There wasn't this huge overarching power structure that forced people to live under Big Brother. People were like, it's actually better to not do these things. And aren't the drugs that they take in Fahrenheit 451 to, to not feel? So rather than sort of just comforting or making you feel good, it's just to, like, get rid of your emotions. Yeah. Well, that's why books are gone there. Because they make you feel things. Yeah. They make you feel bad. Or they make you feel contemplative enough that you would understand that you live a pointless life, I guess. Or... That you've been so easily self-medicated that you're just in a constant state of sloth. I don't know. There's, I've always seen that as something more reasonable. I don't ever think people would be on board with no books ever just because publicity-wise that looks bad. <laughs> but because bad people burn books. But I really do see the things he critiqued. Overstimulation, numbness, fear of suffering. Those are is censorship. Is that on the table? Yeah, yeah. When it's it's censorship, not from even a moral point. It's not like people in that world are saying books are dirty. It's not like the Nazis or the Soviets or or the fundamentalist Da Vinci Code Christians are. Where this book is dangerous. Yeah. It's more like these things are damaging. So why not destroy them? I would also throw out there that if uh, if someone's ever looking for a visual Cliff's Notes slash 
just a good visual representation of Fahrenheit 451. Instead of watching the Michael B. Jordan HBO thing that occurred, you know, I have not seen that, so I cannot. That occurred. It wasn't. It wasn't bad. It just was fine. It was there. It was okay. But um, I genuinely feel like a. It was trying to be its own movie, but frankly, I think it's a a better movie take on four Fahrenheit four fifty one than any of the other ones have been. But the movie Equilibrium. With Christian Bale. Mm. You know, it was trying to be a mishmash of a lot of different dystopias. I think it nailed Fahrenheit 451 better than the HBO special about a year or so ago, whenever it came out. Um, I'm trying to remember. I feel like there was a situation with the author um, where his greatest concern was the dumbing down of culture and people's reliance on a visual medium. And... I mean, people can take art and interpret it however they want, but he was less concerned about censorship, and it was it was really just the concern that people will become so consumed with visual media, they'll they won't see the importance of or value in books, yeah. and and then people in power can use that to control them. For sure, I I think he was exposed just because of the time he was writing, as opposed to Huxley or Orwell, to media theory mm-hmm. and. People like Neil Postman come out after that, and you have these really useful distinctions. Um, one of them being temperatures. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but some media theorists talk about media in terms of is it a hot media or is it a cold media? Mm. Um, and what they mean by that is a hot media like visual, like film or television has so much in it and is so active that you're kind of a receptive agent in it. Like when you watch a movie, you're not like, I wonder what Will Smith looks like. And yeah. you have to kind of fill that in. Yeah, there's a passivity to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where cold media kind of you have to come to it and then you kind of fill in. I'm not saying it perfectly, but fill in the blanks. Right. Of So like books or poetry. They're very, and poetry would be even colder, I think, because it's so abstract that you have to, you have to be able to make connections and associate things, even if they're not even literally the same thing. Or like symphony or something like that. Any abstract art form. So classical music, music in general, without media, uh, visual representation would be a great example of a cold media. Um, So, and I'm not... 100% 100% sure on these terms, but that's my understanding of it. And I think you can see that. I, I I, think, like, for Bradbury, something like Sesame Street would be a harbinger of, like, the apocalypse. And what I mean, for him, what that means is Sesame... I don't think Sesame Street is bad. Right. Nick Seagraves, hi. I love Big Bird... I love the gay representation in Bert and Ernie. That was very impactful for me as a child. And, um, you know, great. And there's people who are like... Very progressive stuff. Hispanic or something on it or whatever. But what he would say is what this communicates to children is that education should be entertaining. Because if you grow up watching Sesame Street and then you have to sit in a classroom and someone's like all right, well, this is a book and there are no colors and there are no birds and there are no puppets and no one's going to 
make you feel good while you're learning this, that's where the struggle comes in, according to these people. I don't think that's 100% true, but I do see, I don't think, I think there are certain things that Sesame Street can never educate on just because of how it is. Well, because it the Sesame Street brings kids, like you said, a certain amount of service. Like the, it puts things on a platter, and there are certain kinds of learning that you have to kind of do, mm-hmm. and you have to fill in the gaps, and that it takes more work. And ultimately, that kind of learning is very satisfying, but it's also harder. Mm-hmm. And it's just mostly a critique of passivity, because you're a very passive learner when you're watching a Netflix educational thing. But when you're reading an AP biology textbook, there's no way, there's, there isn't a way to Sesame Street that. And so expanding that, think about income, government, politics. I don't ever want there to be a Sesame Street for politics because I don't think politics should be entertaining. It's kind of like, pushing these things into their own space. And I think that's what he was afraid of, is that everything, everyone will become so passive. Like his wife, the main character's wife in that novel, is such a non-active figure. She doesn't really have agency, not in like a feminist way, but in terms of she likes her shows, she likes her drugs, the end. Done. That's your whole life. And something that you just said that I think is really important is that Bradbury would not want politics to become entertainment. And in fact, for many people, just objectively, psychologically speaking, politics has become entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why you see the cult of personality build up so strongly around presidents like Barack Obama and Donald Trump uh, on, on different sides. Because what happens is, and I'm borrowing a bit from Jonah Goldberg here, Um, What happens is people start to consume politics as entertainment and entertainment uh, involves narrative most of the time. And that once once you've identified the good guy in a narrative, the good guy can then do a bunch of stuff that if he weren't the good guy, you would be like, whoa, you're like killing people and you're like stealing cars and you're doing all sorts of things that seem questionable to me. But since we've established that you're the person I'm rooting for, since you're the, you know, hero or anti-hero or whatever, I kind of want you to kind of want you to succeed here. And so uh, a a Donald Trump can get an incredibly loyal following where he can say, look, I could walk out on the street and literally shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and my people would still support me because he's the good guy now. Mm -hmm. He's the hero of the narrative. Actual quote. Yeah, that he, by the way, he said that. Yeah. Um, I think it was Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and so so what you what you get is you the entertainmentization of politics turns it into less of a thing you have to build, a cold medium that you have to participate in, and it becomes more of a passive receptivity, a narrative and an entertainment and now the good guy's the good guy and he's going to do all the work and it doesn't matter what he says or does. He's a good guy. So there are real world ramifications for what Bradbury feared, which was be, like turning really serious stuff that takes participation into really passive stuff that kind of is just brought to you through mostly visual media. Not great, Bob. 
Not a good look. So besides Orwell, Huxley, and Bradbury, are there any other thinkers, figures, dystopias that you think belong on sort of the, the Mount Rushmore that should be considered like, hey, these are, these are the thinkers, these are the visions, these are the dystopias that help us think about these things at the highest level? Yeah, I would add two more. I would add, and this isn't exclusive, there's more. Um, zombies, I, I, I think the cultural influence and the very specific modern fear of zombies, whether that's Day of the Dead. Mm -hmm. Like Romero. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you can see that in his movies. Like Dawn of the Dead is very claustrophobic. It's home invasion. It's, Which one has the mall in it? I think that's, that's Day, Day of the Day Dead. Day of the Dead. Yeah. And that's very like, Cons that's obviously about consumerism like they're zombies they consume and they're all in a mall and you can kind of see it reflect these fears and i think another huge one would be blade runner and mm -hmm. i know it's based off of something else but the blade runner aesthetic in and of itself brought cyberpunk fears to a mainstream audience mm -hmm. which I mean, Bradbury, none of those people were like, um, and also what's going to be really hard in this society is knowing if you're a human or not, which as a modern person, that becomes more and more of a fear. Yeah. And you see in Blade Runner this whole thing of replicas and... So that's Philip K. Dick, but it's also the vision of, um, of uh, Ridley Scott. Scott. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think those are really big. I think recently because of pop culture stuff handmaid's tale has gotten a lot more yeah and i read that book in high school and i really liked it mm -hmm. and i so i don't want to short shrift margaret atwood i think that that's a really interesting vision of sort of a dystopia based upon things outside of our control yeah like oh people can't ha and i would add uh, children of men to this as well for sure of like oh people can't have babies now that's a big problem mm -hmm. like that's as big a problem as burning all the books yeah right maybe bigger mm -hmm. right and, and and so atwood uh the book is really interesting how sort of the the how sex becomes such a totem and it becomes such a symbol and it becomes such a thing it's like listen we've been doing it wrong we don't know why we don't know how but we need to be more intentional and have more rules and have more structure and this religious language and this sort of military language and this very hierarchical structural language gives us the tools to be able to put sex back where it belongs, which is for reproduction, because right now we're not reproducing and we need to return that that the top reason for sex to its rightful place, right? Because we've mm -hmm. lost our way. I think that's super powerful. I think that the TV show is a little bit less so. It's more of a clarion call for feminists to take kind of action against some sort of encroaching religious um, fundamentalist uh, fascism, mm -hmm. which I do not see indications of actually happening in reality in our culture. It seems like um, fundamentalist Christianity has lost more in the last 20 years than it's won. But I think that Atwood should still be mentioned among sort of the, the great dystopic thinkers. For sure. And I, I, it's also because she distills such a great fear. And I think when she wrote it, you have the beginnings of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and this yeah. type of rhetoric that was... Like, if you're a liberal feminist woman 
and you're hearing a bunch of people being like... In 1980 or yeah. something? And you're seeing this Reagan weird takeover, super morality, good old boys type rhetoric. A bunch of old white dudes are telling everybody what morality is and what it is not. Yeah. And I think that's like... That is what makes dystopic narratives good in general, is finding something that's maybe hidden or a fear that you could see growing out of control. And I think like the modern Hulu version, there are definitely parallels to our life still, but I agree with you. I think that if this would have came out during the Bush presidency, it would have been a lot more impactful because Trump just doesn't fit the bill of a theocratic like like if all of a sudden someone convinced him that it would be more popular and effective to uh, follow Cthulhu rather Mm -hmm. than whatever weird god he professes to follow he would just do it or if it was like hey Kim Jong Un's the new god he'd be like dope this is great as long as it gets me more people visiting Trump Tower. <laughs> so, yeah, it just, it just doesn't resonate. I mean, maybe if Mike Pence took over, it would resonate more. Yeah. If it was a Pence platform and it was old school values. Like, make America gee golly gosh darn again. Yeah. Pray the gay away. Like, all the yeah. classics, anything like that, I could see it. But I do think there is a point of fiction where even in out of its context, it does still have some reflection. And that's like the good thing about it. I don't live in a Brave New World society or a 1984 society, but I definitely see like how how could you not have a slight remembrance of 1984 when talking to Alexa. Yeah. There, I mean, I guess you, it could become so commonplace that you're like, whatever. But the first couple times I was ever around Alexa, I was like, this is so hard to take seriously because I just, because of what I've read, it this feels really bad. <laughs> like, it feels really scary. And I'm not saying I'm not anti-Alexa. I think... Alexa provides so much comedy for the normal person because she's so stupid (laughs) and technology is supposed to be so cool, but it actually just makes everything more inconvenient. (laughs) And I love that people, instead of pulling out their phones to type something in, try to speak to a robot to do that for them. No judgment, obviously, from my tone. Um, Keep (laughs) speech to texting. Please. Just keep it up. Please, because it's funny. Um... But yeah, you can just see reflections of that there, other places. However, and I know I've talked so much this episode, I apologize, Tim. I'm for it. But there's also things I hate when people say something is dystopic. I hate when someone jumps the gun. I will give you an example. That's my favorite thing, examples. Please do. Drag queen readings. Okay? I don't know if you know this. But in efforts of, I guess, inclusion, or I don't know, people have been organizing drag queens 
to read storybooks to children okay. in public libraries. Yes. In normal states, that's bad. In northern states, this is like, okay, whatever. My kid's already a drag queen. I don't care. But in southern states, obviously, there's been some... It's a bigger deal. There's been some discussion, right? And I've read some hot take think pieces of this is a Ray Bradbury book burning situation. Now, do I think that drag queens should be able to read to children? Yes, I do. Because they're really great and honestly, like... Super funny. They're hilarious and... They probably just want to, like, be a part of the mainstream community, and you should probably let them do that. But also make up tips for your preteen daughter. Which I would appreciate, because my preteen daughter is ugly as sin. Um, but the, Eat a salad, Jenna. Honestly, learn to contour. If you show up to preschool and you are not painted for the gods, are you even in American society anymore? Regardless... I've read pieces that are like, this is a book burning type situation. And it's not. And it's not. I And to be really clear, I do think that they should be able to read to children in public spaces. But I just, I think that that makes those dystopic critiques so much cheaper by, it's not that any time we, like, keeping the anarchist cookbook out of a public library isn't us being afraid of, activity and wanting our culture to be passive i just don't want a 13 year old like learning 21 savages fan making pipe bombs Mm -hmm. right more specifically blowing themselves up because yeah someone who pro um, i will not confirm or deny anything on record here but a lot of the recipes in that and other similar writings are really just better ways to blow yourself up than anybody else. Yeah. So, also, which might be their purpose. Honestly. If you're not watching Twelve Monkeys while you make those crock pot bombs, yeah. like, are you even really alive? For sure, you're listening to the Doom Three soundtrack max volume. Damn you right. can't even hear the treble anymore. It's just like blood oozing it's from your ears. It's only the six string bass. Yeah. Yes. Honestly, everything drop D forever. <laughs> and you missing a couple fingers. Never stopped anybody. Listen, she's not going to date you anyway. <laughs> I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. Oh, weenus. That's who wrote that song. You're welcome for that nostalgia yeah. moment. All of this said, <laughs> drag queens, public libraries, sorry, sorry. censorship, book burning. What, 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 where were we headed with that? Oh, I was just saying I don't like the shallow in my opinion comparison to this is an this is evidence that we live in a trumpian oh yeah how about this the laziest thing in the world is to say we're living in x dystopia because there are a couple of things that you don't like that remind you of a book you read when you were a sophomore in high school grow up yeah we're not living in any dystopia sorry but as a transition to like a fine a Jerry Springer final thought, I would like each of us to share as we kind of close this down. What do you think is the most likely kind of pseudo dystopia? What are we actually closest to? If we're not closest to a religio fascist pregnancy cult, like what is the one that you see as actually like most legitimately almost there? And I will start. I think a society in which 
everything can be medicated by something, either by medication that goes into your brain or by medication in the form of entertainment or by immersive environments, 3D, VR. Like, and I'm not, I'm not whatever those people are who hate technology, Luddite. I'm not a Luddite. I like technology. It's the, 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 the complete immersion of bodies and minds into devices that to me that part that part of kind of the soma vision of the world in which everything is is immersed in some other reality in which you're numb in which you're in which you're you're medicated away that i think is the thing that is probably most close to happening although not particularly close to happening like the unreality of living in a fully kind of medicated cultural moment that's what i think pretty spooky I don't know if it's the most likely to happen, at least in terms of the timeline, because I think we would be at best several decades away from this type of dystopia. But if anybody has seen the movie Gattaca, because mm. frankly, I think this whole discussion has been sorely lacking some Ethan Hawke. Here. Yeah, love me some Gattaca. So, Jude Law. Come on. Uh, just this whole. Pure sex. This whole concept of you know, designer children and what that looks like. But I think that there is a potential for just kind of the classic, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions because as we develop more and more genetic-based cure f- cures for diseases, mm-hmm. why would we not want that? Uh, yeah. Of course we want that. You know, can it save this person from cancer? Can it save before you even have your ch- your children and they have those birth defects? Can we... S- can we fix that and say that, like, I understand... I mean, we're already trying to get rid of anybody with Down syndrome. Yes. Like, actively. Literally, yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you think about that and how that then transfers to the idea of, well, we've mapped the genome to X degree, and so you can pick and choose. Not only can we eradicate different diseases, but you can pick and choose specific traits. And what does that then do to society when you have somebody who is... God forbid, a normal human being, and they're trying to get, you know, a job that is only reserved for the genetic elite. And I'm not going to say, you know, this was a wholly unique example. I think it was a, a amalgamation of quite a few different sci-fi stories and dystopias. But, um, you know, I think that that is something that I could foresee happening just because... It is a potential result of the best intentions, trying Mm -hmm. to fix genuine problems, genuine hurts and pains in people's lives through available technology and knowledge. But it is a it's a very dangerous world that we could accidentally build for ourselves. Yeah. And I would add to that the latest season of Westworld, Westworld season three. I'm only two episodes in, so please don't spoil it. Well, basi- but basically, it's it's mm-hmm. a algorithmic version of that. Rather mm-hmm. than gene editing being mm-hmm. the primary sort of social control, it's we're using algorithms to map out everyone's life, right. and then we will guide them through all of the inputs and everything, mm-hmm. like through what job can you get, and through apps that match you to people for dating and stuff like that. People's paths are both predicted, and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because they're guided towards those eventual destinations by a very advanced 
computer algorithm god thing. So it's a similar idea, just a different technology right. that's functioning as the kind of mover and shaker. Spooky too. Yeah. Spooky too. Uh, mine's similar. I think that the American paradigm of wealth and medicine, I see that in the darkest possible future. But, you know, as global populations rise, pandemics become more common, health becomes more of a commodity, and a world where, like you said, whenever I read futurism stuff of gene therapy stops aging or whatever, my first thought is like, if you can af afford it. <laughs> right. So my f horrible in-game fear would be if the privileged or the wealthy had access to medical immortality through wealth. It allows money to become more than it already is the ultimate currency in terms of power like there's no more charismatic power there's no more intellectual power there's no more artistic power it is literally if you can afford to live for 700 years like could you imagine elon musk owning a business for 700 years that the extension of human life pushes out even more and more people that like as populations grow the wealthy stay alive longer the poor die sooner and it just allows this extreme calcification of power it's a more direct or darwinian application of wealth inequality yeah right saying we are literally going to use this to live longer to propagate more and to deny that to people with whom we are competing genetically. Like, it's already hard enough to be like, my dad's a millionaire and I have a trust fund, so I can go get a humanities PhD and spend my whole life studying. How do you compete with that someone who has to work a day job and go to school? Now imagine that also I was genetically bred for thousands of dollars to have a very high IQ. And because your parents didn't have that money, you just, by definition, can't compete with me. So why would anyone ever hire you? It almost like solidifies class. Well, yeah, it's a calcification of class. Yeah. It's like a codification of class. So yeah. that a world in which that medical technology is only available to the wealthy would be almost a reversion to like class as this reified thing where it's like this is not class in like a cute kind of symbolic way, but real class. Oh, That's yeah. not like sort of transcendable. There would be subspecies. It would eventually be this is one type of human and this is the other kind. The betas and, and the gammas, yeah, et cetera. It would be, I just think that's really scary. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So right before we go, what's one thing that each of you think like could push back on either your chosen dystopia or any dystopia? Is there something that you should say, this is an important thing in society that exists and maybe should be nurtured or encouraged? Like, is there any, what's the thing that gives you hope in terms of us not devolving into a dystopia? For me, I think it's the longing for authentic community and relationships in which people have 
in which people are both allowed to be imperfect and not have to perfect, you know, not have to perfect themselves using technology or whatever, or drugs or algorithms. Um, it's, it's that people, there seems to be this human longing for not just a belonging, not just like a, Hey, tell me I'm accepted, but for some real kind of back and forth relationship talking like what we're doing right now, I think as long as people want other people to tell them the truth and have these kinds of real conversations, that is sort of a, um, a blockade against, um, those, sort of easily society-wide systemic engineered outcomes, whether that is wealth and medicine or whether that's technology or algorithms or gene editing, that like, I guess it's like in a word, humanism. It's, it's the, I know like it's all the rage to get a engineering degree or whatever, but I think the humanities, when they're not being co-opted by like very specific political ideologies, like, I think the humanities and, like, be people being interested in books, fiction, right? This is what we've been talking about. Like, the interest in stories themselves, in good stories, in, in people reading dystopic literature, like, that in itself, and maybe this is what these writers were thinking, could inoculate us to this becoming a reality. Yeah, that was my point, is, I mean, I know that people in power will find ways to have a pride month and be like all good but i think having these publicly i like that we teach brave new world in high school i know it's a cliche i nah, 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 but i do like that we do that and the thing that gives me the most hope different point i like how divided we are honestly like it, it keeps certain things from happening yeah it yeah. sucks it really does but there's this Trump presidency has been in some ways so depressing, obviously, but also really positive for me because I like the fact that even in his own party, people are like, we're not doing that. We're just not doing it. Like Trump didn't get to office and everybody was like, this is it. There's going to be portraits of him in every McDonald's. Yeah, it, it, it gives the lie to the fascist argument. I'm mm -hmm. like, if like, yeah, sure. He would be if he could be probably, mm -hmm. but like, not here, bitch. Yeah. Sorry. It's not happening. I mean, does he have a lot of influence? Yes. But is it absolute? No. Obviously. Like, you can turn on any major television network and Donald Trump will be blasted. And good. There's good. even a few people at Fox News. Yeah. The remnant. Shortly before they're asked. For the next few weeks. Yeah. Until we never <laughs> see them again. But, yeah. But they, they asked for it, so... For me, my view on any type of resistance or subversion to a dystopia is on a much smaller scale than what most people would view, which is kind of based on what you're talking about, Ryan, which is authentic relationships with people. And my view would really be to connect truly with the people in your life, watch out for the people you care about, and to use what you have for the sake of good. I'm not in a position of any level of political power and really, you know, should I be? Let's be honest here. Probably not. But I can still look out for the people that, uh, not just that I care about, but that I encounter and try and do some good in the world with that. And maybe within the 
the power structures I find myself, whether it's a job or if it's a church or an organization or whatever it may be, try to be a force for good within those organizations and do good from the inside. Um, but I think the, the most important thing is even for somebody like myself who views my impact as on a very small scale, I still believe I can have an impact. And I think that's one of the most important things. It's very, very easy to say, well, I can never have an impact. I can never make a change. And I'm going to go super sappy. This is chicken soup for the soul level crap, but we're doing it. You know, there's an old story about a man walks on a beach after there had been a storm. There's a thousand starfish on the beach. I was carrying you the whole time. Footprints in the sand, my friend. Is that how it goes? Not quite. Oh, might as well be. Basically a child, one by one, throwing starfish back into the ocean. And the guy says, why are, why are you bothering? It, it, you'll never make a difference. There's too many. And the kid throws another one back in the sea and says, well, it made a difference to that one. And it's obviously supposed to be this warm and fuzzy, let's all hug and, I don't know, eat a cheeseburger or whatever. The yeah, but it's also kind of like catcher in the rye, too. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, like, you know... I'm probably not going to be in a position to stand on a national stage, and that's probably a good thing. But, you know, for the people that I encounter, and whether they're in my life for years or just a single day, just trying to do some good in the world and trying to steer things back towards humanity. Yeah, I think agency is huge. People being like, I might not be able to make all the difference, but I could make like a tiny difference just by like doing this small mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, enjoy your current dystopia. But uh, until we meet again, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And Rick. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.